0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Dja and the Wadawurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and Aboriginal Elders of other communities who may be listening. Anyway, shall we get this uh, bloody show on the bloody road? Let's get going. Okay, and one, two, three. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. I'm sitting across from a woman at the moment and her name's Phoebe.
0: Hello, my lady. Hello, my lady. <laughs> Hello, my love. My lady. <laughs> uh,
1: yes, this is the podcast about chicks in history, and this will be the last episode in this season.
0: Oh my god! Oh my god! It's been so much fun. had a- the best time.
1: Oh, it's just been great, and mm. done a great job. Congrats. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> and yeah, sixteen eps. Mm-hmm. it?
0: Yeah, sixteen fabulous females. That Fifteen. We've been able to tell you about.
1: Yeah, who's been your favorite?
0: Um, I think the ones that I've done, Isabella Bird, is up there with Isabella one of my faves. Bird. Yeah, and that's just yeah.
1: a good name, too, isn't, isn't
0: it? Isabella isn't it? Bird. Mm. But they've all been fabulous. What about you? Who's your favorite? I name? think my my most like
1: eye opening, like oh my god why don't we know about this was the was Kathleen uh, Butler who he did mm. on the Sydney Harbour Bridge just because yep. like I'd never heard that name before and, you know, I was a Sydney sider for, you know, 40-something years and I just had never heard that story and it's just such a shame. Mm. But not now because now I know and I can entremacate people. That's exactly right. Yeah, so I have a little correction to make. I mentioned a podcast, uh, "Forgotten History." Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be "Forgotten Australia." Oh, so I just wanted to correct that in case mm-hmm. people are trying to find that because that is a, it's a really good historical Australian historical podcast. Um, and I got the name wrong. So, oops, I'm only human. Only human. That's, That's
0: right. It. That's yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Um. Do you need to make any
0: corrections? Uh, I don't know. Do I? That was very accusatory. Do you need to make any corrections? Uh, so there was this one time back in 1996 um, where. Uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, uh, no, yeah. I did want to say, actually, this isn't a correction. Just You just jogged my memory about listening to podcasts. There's a podcast I listen to called Archive Fever by uh, Claire Wright and Eve's Rees. And they interview historians and archivists and authors yep. and all sorts. And they interviewed Kate Grenville, who wrote oh, about Elizabeth yes. Macarthur. So I just thought, if anyone was interested, it was a really interesting episode to hear about her um, her work, but yes. also talking about um, the works that she's done on Elizabeth Macarthur. Seeing as we've we she's love been a that. chick, yeah. Oh my mm. gosh,
1: that's also a favorite, Elizabeth Macarthur. That was, yeah. that was amazing. I mean, that yeah. also that. Again, you know, in Australia, an amazing Australian woman that we has, you know, has not been given the recognition she deserves. Mm. Oh, that's good. My neighbours just started the (laughs) 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 whipper-snipper.
0: What a day to be whipper-nipping.
1: I did plant my veggie patch on the (gasps) weekend. What
0: did you pop in there? Tell me.
1: I've done lots of things. I've done peas and beans and eggplant and zucchini and... (gasps) Tomatoes and spring onions, a beetroot. Where could you go? I know. And I spent most of the day in the garden planting, and then we had torrential rain <laughs> straight after. And I was like, no, my little babies.
0: Not the vegetables. Not the vegetables.
1: Aww. And so, but they survived. They were all mm. right. They had a really good drink.
0: Yes. I have a veggie pod, which I love. Yeah, do you? Yeah, so, yep. that's that's so good. So good. I've got um, you know, would you like our gardening tips? Just call us Costa. <laughs> um, I've got broccoli and lettuce growing in there at the moment.
1: Mm. Oh, mm. Broccoli is one I should I should grow. Yes, yes. Because I do love a broccoli.
0: <laughs> in eighteenth century England, the pineapple was a status symbol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can I just
1: say, I've just recently gotten back into pineapple.
0: Oh, I'll tell you about my pineapple issues once I finish showing about this. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So those who were rich enough to own a pineapple would often carry them around to signify their personal wealth and high class status. Mm. It was also a time where everything from clothing to homewares was decorated with tropical fruit as a mark of social status.
1: Is that so?
0: I know. Just imagine, it's pineapple. A, that's brilliant. Mm. i had a
1: friend uh, whose wedding theme was pineapples. Wow! Yeah, which was it was great. There were there, but it's pigeon p- odd. That's pigeonholing, isn't it? Really? I mean, <laughs> pineapple themed. It was very everything was pineapples, and then we went to the little reception afterwards, and we all got given a pineapple.
0: As a take-home gift, as the like bon
1: No, just to take into the reception with us. I'm not sure it was. It was, um, I don't want to say too much. She's a good friend. She might be listening. Is
0: she, is she still married? Yes. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was a sign of their everlasting love.
1: Or their wealth and status.
0: Maybe, maybe. <laughs> was this in 18th century England where this wedding took place?
1: Close. It was <laughs> no, it was about five years ago.
0: I'm fascinated. What other pineapple things happened at this wedding? Well, you know, it was there was
1: pineapples on the tables, there was mm-hmm. pineapples like on the invitation, there was pineapples like artwork, pineapple. I mean, I was a bridesmaid. We didn't have to come as a pineapple. <laughs> which is good. <laughs>
0: oh, so you didn't uh, have to wear. Yellow. With like a green fascinator or something. No, no, we didn't have mm. to dress up as
1: a pineapple. It was just, I think, the bride just loves pineapples, and it was fair enough. You know, it was hot and summer, and we were in Byron, and it was all very tropical. So, were you drinking piña coladas? <gasps> we actually were not, which is oh. a huge oversight, I think. Mm.
0: Anyway, I'm not a fan of pineapples. And all of my friends and family will do this. Right. So, when I was 18, I was going to change the world clearly because that's what yeah. 18 year olds doing. Uh, so, I went to Ghana in West Africa for yes. three and a half, four months and volunteered over there. Amazing. But sometimes the only food I would get for the day would be pineapple. And I ate that every day oh. for nearly four months.
1: Oh, yeah. Now
0: I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. The smell. Yeah. The taste. The, and it's hard because I like going Fair on enough. tropical holidays and they like yeah. to put pineapple in lots of things.
1: And then they do say also I think if you've got pineapples in your tr- shopping trolley on a certain or your shopping basket, it's a status of that you like you're a bit open. Oh, oh With, is it? With things. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. I think it means you're you're a bit you like to swing both ways,
0: perhaps? Yeah. Oh God! Something
1: like that. I mean, the, who knew this humble fruit had just I know. We have so much going on?
0: Yeah, I get click and collect, so I wonder what the <laughs> <laughs> people at Coles think about me.
1: <laughs> and who knew we could string out a conversation about pineapples <laughs> for more than two minutes? I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh, we God. are finishing on a. Hi, today, I am a little bit hungover, so I'm trying with all my might (gasps) to just keep it together.
0: Oh, I've been transcribing an interview this afternoon and I just, I can't, I can't anymore. I'm going back. So today I'm going to tell you about an amazing woman whose name was Helen Torsig, who overcame many barriers, one of which being a, um, was being a woman and another was uh, a number of learning difficulties, to give life to some of the most vulnerable, who were babies.
1: Oh, lovely. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> Helen Brooke Torsig was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on the 24th of May, 1898, the youngest of four children to Frank Torsig and Edith Guild. Her father, Frank, was a prominent economics professor at Harvard University and her mother, Edith, raised and cared for their family and home. However, Edith had been one of the first women to attend Radcliffe College and was interested in zoology and other natural sciences. Radcliffe had been an extension of Harvard and was a college that provided instruction for women, but not something that you could then go on and work. So it was just no. you know, nothing. The pretty was... little lady, something to it's do. It's a fake. It's a it's a fake college.
1: Yeah, fake exactly. college. They got fake um, degrees. It was mm. all make believe, just to keep them quiet.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Helen enjoyed a privileged upbringing, and her mother Edith's love for nature, zoology, and botany fostered a love of nature in Helen. She would go on to have a lifelong appreciation for the natural environment. Early on and surprisingly, in her childhood, Helen was diagnosed with dyslexia, which made learning especially difficult for her. However, her father, Frank, realized her potential and nurtured that. She worked hard, and her father helped to tutor her. But what is really interesting is that she was able to get a dyslexia diagnosis at all because when we factor in the time period, this is really early 20th century yeah, it really is yeah, I didn't
1: that that was a thing um, yeah. I mean-
0: like it's a struggle to get a diagnosis now for kids. Yeah. Um, right. So for it, for her to be diagnosed at that time was amazing, and also the fact um, how young she was because usually they don't test for these things now for kids until they're sort of right. ten plus, fourteen plus, even. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, and still is, something that often goes undiagnosed, and was not well understood at the time, and there were no treatments readily available. There's no cure for dyslexia and she would struggle with reading and writing for the rest of her life. Because of this dyslexia, her teachers treated her poorly. However, her father helped to le- helped her to learn to read, write, spell and learn her numbers. But reading really never came very easily to Helen. Sadly, when Helen was 11 years old, her mother died of tuberculosis, something she also contracted shortly thereafter. And then her years suffering TB affected her schoolwork further as mm-hmm. well as her dyslexia.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: However, she did excel in school despite her learning difficulties and graduated from Cambridge School for Girls in 1917 and then enrolled at Radcliffe College where her mother had attended. Good on her. Two years. I know. Good on her. Getting her education. Yeah, good on her. Two years later, she transferred to the University of California in Berkeley, where she thrived and earned her Bachelor of Arts. She graduated from the University of California in 1921 and then returned to Boston, where she hoped to study public health at Harvard. Although her dream was to study medicine, her father discouraged her and suggested that public health may be more appropriate as it was more of a field for women than medicine. Mm. yes that's that's amazing
1: though good on her like even that she's considering studying medicine and she's done all of that with those you know learning um yeah difficulties
0: absolutely incredible she met with the dean of the university who told her much the same as her father however she was welcome to take the prerequisite courses to complete the public health program but she would never earn her degree why you may ask? Why? Well, well, she was a woman, and women were simply not granted degrees from Harvard University. She was allowed to study histology on a non-credit basis, and would have to sit in a remote corner of the hall during lectures and view slides in a separate room.
1: God, see, that's just bullshit. When like mm. they would be like, "Yeah, you can come and listen to the classes and do all the things that everyone else does, but you're not going to get a degree. Exactly, not give you a degree.
0: Yep. God. So, much to her father's dismay, she was still insistent on attending medical school. She took the pre medical course at Harvard and Boston University. Mm, Jesus. And by this time, Boston University, unlike Harvard, was allowing women to attend and participate in laboratory courses. One of her lecturers noticed her talent and allowed her to help with his research on mammalian cardiac muscle contraction. She became the author of a paper published before she even attended medical school.
1: Wow. Mm. She's, yeah. She's got it going
0: on. She's smart. She's smart. Whilst at Boston University, she became interested in the heart and her mentors urged her to apply to the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, which accepted both men and women interestingly, Johns Hopkins was founded in large part on donations from female philanthropists whose monetary gifts were dependent on the acceptance of women to the medical school. So she graduated from Johns Hopkins in 1927. However, she did not succeed in earning the sole internship position reserved for a woman in internal medicine. However, Helen did not go unnoticed and was offered an extra year working at the heart clinic with Dr. Edward Perkins Carter, who noticed her potential. This year gave her the time to improve her knowledge and skills in cardiology and eventually she was offered a residency position in paediatric medicine. Two years later, she was named head of the paediatric cardiac clinic at the Harriet Lane home of John Hopkins, a position she would maintain until her retirement in 1963. Wow. This position would make her one of the first women in the country to hold such a prestigious position.
1: She was 32. Wow. Yay. Mm.
0: This was due to Dr. Edward Park, one of her biggest advocates, who was the director and then later the chief of paediatrics at Johns Hopkins University. She was also appointed a fellow at the heart station at Hopkins and went on to develop the paediatric cardiology clinic there. During childhood, Helen had developed an ear infection, which she had never really recovered from. At the age of 31, she began to lose her hearing completely, which robbed her of the ability to listen to her patients' hearts. Oh, no. She tried a number of different avenues to try and bring her hearing back or at least increase the small amount she had, which included being fitting for fitted for hearing aids, amplified stethoscopes and lip reading to help with communicating with her patients. Mm. However, listening to a patient's body and their heart with a stethoscope was a huge part of her job and there was no real alternative in the 1930s.
1: Oh, what a shame.
0: Helen eventually learned to listen with her hands by gently placing her fingers on a child's chest and feeling for palpitations in her patient's chest. Oh, my God. Oh, no. I know this is a, um this is an emotional roller coaster, yeah, right? <laughs> Helen's method of feeling her patients' hearts led her to notice a common beat pattern in the malformed hearts of infant patients who outwardly displayed a cyanotic hue, which was more commonly known as blue babies. So they be oh, wow. losing yeah, yeah oxygen yeah. She traced the cause of the problem to a lack of oxygenated blood circulating from the lungs to the heart. Helen believed that the creation of a shunt could alleviate the problem and champion the cause with surgeon Dr. Alfred Blaylock, Johns Hopkins, chief of the Department of Surgery. in nineteen thirty nine Helen had initially approached Dr. Robert Gross to help with her invention, however, he was not interested. <laughs> what a dick dick. Yeah. Um, Three years later, in 1942, when Helen was in the gallery watching Dr. Blaylock perform the same surgery as Dr. Gross once had, she made sure to congratulate him and offered him a challenge. Helen said, Dr. Blaylock, you've done a very nice job closing this ductus. Why can't you build a ductus? To some of our cyanotic children, this would mean life for them. This would be the beginning of their working relationship. Dr. Blaylock and Helen, as well as Dr. Blaylock's surgery technician, Vivian Thomas, developed the Blaylock-Torsig Shunt, an artery-like tube designed to deliver oxygen-rich blood from the lungs to the heart. Unfortunately, Vivian Thomas was not named or recognised for his integral part in helping to invent the shunt as he was an African-American man. Mm -hmm. Years later, he would be recognised and the shunt would become known as the Blaylock-Thomas-Torsig Shunt. So he had performed hundreds of practice surgeries on um, animal hearts
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to
0: try and get this up and running, but because yeah. he was black, there was no that chance he was yeah. going to be recognised. On the 29th of November 1944, Eileen Saxton, a 15-month-old girl with tetraology of Fallot. Which is a combination of congenital heart defects characterized by hypoxic spells, which include difficulty breathing and alterations in consciousness, as well as a change in the shape of the fingertips, heart murmur, and cyanosis. Hmm. The tetra. tetra <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, this yeah. Tricky yeah, it's words. The medical, the medical.
1: Medical, tricky ones. It just, you've got to think about it before you oh. choose it. you got to go. <laughs> Am I going to be able to pronounce the words?
0: I keep doing this too. <laughs> ah, tetralogy of Fallot had been considered untreatable and due to Helen's innovation, Eileen was the first patient to survive a successfully implanted Blalock torsig shunt. This surgery was written about in the US magazine's Time and Life as well as newspapers around the world. Vivian Thomas said that Helen passionately described her patients and their plight and that no known medical treatment existed. She went on to suggest that their only hope was a type of surgical approach to get more blood to the lungs as a plumber changes the pipes around. Mm. Helen and Dr Blaylock travelled throughout Europe and the US giving lectures and teaching surgeons their new technique. By 1954, the surgery was standard treatment for babies with the tetraology of Fallot. But she wasn't ready to hang up her scrubs just yet, and continued to research congenital heart defects. She wrote a textbook and helped to establish the subboard of pediatric cardiology at Johns Hopkins. This solidified pediatric cardiology as a specialty, as a standalone from adult cardiology. Mm. So at one point, Amazing. they were all one under the one guy. Yeah. Guys. yeah, yeah. yeah. In the late 1950s, the world was witnessing huge numbers of children being born with severe birth defects and malformed limbs. These children had shortened or missing arms and legs and was known as phocomelia syndrome. One of Helen's former colleagues told her about this and she traveled to Germany to help research the underlying causes of these birth defects. Through her research, Helen established that these defects were caused using the drug thalidomide during pregnancy. Oh dear. Yeah. In 1957, thalidomide was released as an over the counter medication and was being sold as a sedative, as well as a medication for anxiety, trouble sleeping, and was most often prescribed to combat morning sickness and nausea during pregnancy. Oh, shit. Yeah. And she made the connection. Mm. It was introduced without having been tested on pregnant women and was initially deemed to be safe for pregnancy. Oh. Yeah. So thalidomide had been used in forty-six countries around the world, and eventually more than ten thousand babies were born with a range of severe deformities, of oh, which only forty percent of these babies survived, and thousands of women were suffering from miscarriages. Oh, that's awful. Awful. And Meanwhile, the um, pharmacy companies Yeah. And and there's still clearly a fallout because there are people that were born with defects yeah. that are still alive today. I mean, this was not long ago. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, the late fifties yeah. into yeah. the sort of mid sixties. Yeah, um, and I know there was even a big um, case oh, ten or fifteen years ago in Australia, Um really? against the German pharmaceutical company that produced it.
1: It was also really common then in in those times of the fifties, I guess, for to take a pill like a house, you know, mm. like you're a you know, you need some sleep, you know, pop a sleeping pill or, you know, it was yeah. kind of the, it was sort of all the rage, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, <laughs> the doctor also prescribed smoking to keep, um, you know, suppress your appetite. So, yeah. you know, yeah. There's that. Toms. Good There's times. Good on. times, yeah. We'll
1: just have a biscuit for dinner.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A bit of a let sleep. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yummy. When Helen returned to the US in 1962, she published her findings about the drug and testified before the American College of Physicians and Congress on the dangers of thalidomide. Thanks to her research and testimony, the drug was never approved in the US. So she stopped that from coming to us at all so clearly australia australia and new zealand we had um thalidomide had been approved over here and lots of europe so the uk germany yeah i mean 46 countries
1: that is incredible that she one woman went up against Mm.
0: the, the all like the went
1: up against the pharmaceutical company that's yeah that's incredible i know go helen go helen yes
0: Helen's research and work spurred President Kennedy and the Food and Drug Administration to develop new drug testing programs to analyse the effects of pharmaceuticals on congenital defects. So, I mean, she was looking at one facet of it, but it, you know, saved a whole lot of pain and trauma for a generation, really. Helen officially retired from her position at Johns Hopkins University in 1963, but continued her research and was a tireless advocate for paediatric cardiology. However, she never really retired and continued to write scholarly articles. She wrote more than 100 and approximately 40 of which were written after her retirement. In 1964, she was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Lyndon Johnson for her work in the treatment and prevention of children's heart disease. And in 1965, she became the first woman and first paediatric cardiologist to serve as president of the American Heart Association. Yay! Helen's ideas and determination had long-lasting impacts on cardiology doctors believe that initially after the Blalock-Thomas-Torsick shunt had been fitted, that blue babies would maybe live to their 40s. However, at the beginning of this century, some of these early patients that they put the shunt into have continued to live at least into their 60s. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's given them a hu- I mean, these children weren't supposed to survive at all oh, uh, without this That's without this invention. Sadly, Dr. Helen Brooke-Torsig died tragically in a car accident in 1986, just days before her 88th birthday.
1: Oh, that's sad. That's not nice. So that is the
0: story of Dr. Helen Brooke-Torsig.
1: Amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing.
0: What I really love about this, I mean there's many things I love about this, is that all the research I did not once did it mention that she didn't Marry or have children, and I couldn't find a husband or children mm-hmm. or anything. I thought, great, because that shouldn't like that doesn't have to be part of her story. Yeah, the fact that she didn't like she was saving babies' lives. Yes, yeah, and yeah, women's yeah, Lives as doesn't, well
1: doesn't have to define her. Yeah. Or she was a very private person, and yep. you know, it was not nobody's business. But oh god, there's so many um, amazing things in that story. I can't believe that she's she made that connection, and then went up against the. the FDA, well, yeah, the FDA yeah. or the, yeah. Yeah. well, the FDA, they do the, they do the testing. They do the stuff, testing, eh? yeah. To implement yep. new testing. So, um, oh, that's good. We yeah. finished on a high. Oh, no, we did. Oh, well, I just want to say thank you to you for being an awesome co-host.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. And so much fun.
1: thanks to our listeners and, you know, who you are, your loyal loyal little Chickstorians and, yeah, we hope everybody has a fantastic, I can't believe we're talking about Christmas and New (gasps) Year and it's November and where did this year go but, um, yeah, we hope everyone has a really good break and uh, we'll be back again next year. We will. Can't get rid of us that easily. Cannot, will not, won't Mm -hmm. stop, will not stop, won't Mm -hmm, stop. mm -hmm.
0: Can't stop, won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> She's still drunk, people. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going on a
1: big, big holiday. I'll be going to Europe for a month. Hunter's not happy about
0: Hunter. That. No, no, he's not. Just like, no,
1: you are not going anywhere. <laughs> what are you doing over, Chrissy?
0: Um, I'm just hoping that there's some sun. I did yeah. want to go on a quick little um a quick little tropical holiday, but flights are ridiculously expensive. So unless they drop down, that's not going to happen just yet. Mm. Yeah, so thank you. Thanks for listening
1: and we will be back next year with some new chicks and some new stories and some new things to get angry slash excited about.
0: We'll be building them up for the next few months. And as always, if you've got
1: any ideas (laughs) – Email them through to us, mychickstree at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, have a good rest of the year. Yeah. And you can always go back and listen to some old EPs mm-hmm. or re listen, share away, rate, mm-hmm. review, and subscribe.
0: Yeah. You catch us on the socials.
1: Catch us on the so- socials. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we'll see you, see you next year. See
0: you later. Chickstorians. Bye. Bye.